This is The Guardian. After months and months of denials like this... No, Mr Speaker, I did not attend any parties. But he's clearly said things to the House that were not true. The Prime Minister tells the truth. Was there a party? No rules were broken. And whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. Those untruths and deceptions, lies if you will, were finally exposed because the Prime Minister and Chancellor were fined for breaking Covid laws. We're hearing all about the supposed smallness of all this from the government and its supporters. The birthday cake never left its Tupperware box. Boris Johnson was only at the party for nine minutes. They're only £50 fines. They're trying to make us think this is frivolous, but it's not. It's very serious. There has been a resignation but not from the man at the top. Instead, it's the Justice Minister, David Wolfson. Trust in politics and power has been declining for years, and this might be the point when that turns critical. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff and Salma Shah, former special advisor to Sazir Javid when he was Home Secretary. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. What a week. Everything changed with all this sort of um, kind of unbelievable news, really. Can you just tell me sort of what you felt when you heard this? It's funny. I mean, I've been furious about this for months. I mean, I feel like I've been furious about this for God knows how long now. But when it actually came to it, it's so little surprise, really. Oh, really? Boris Johnson lied. Boris Johnson did something bad, shocked me, you know, knocked me down with a feather. That almost you've reached the end of your anger at that point. You feel kind of numb as if you've kind of gone through this and gone out the other side and it's just confirmation of something you you already knew and it struck me that that really government is relying on that feeling it's relying on a kind of outrage fatigue or a kind of sense that we knew this already and that somehow this is the sort of almost impossible to get over can be got over as a result you know it's it's a very weird feeling almost anticlimactic feeling in the end I think. Salma anticlimactic yeah, I would agree with that. I think the I think the most interesting bit about what happened yesterday was the fact that Rishi Sunak was fined on top of you know ev- everyone else because he was really a pretty, main... pretty torrid fortnight all told, really, isn't he? Yeah, it's, he's not had the best time in in the headlines recently. I mean, it, it goes back to the spring statement, obviously. But yeah, I think there's that sense of fatigue, that sense in the the context uh, has changed. And therefore, you know, this isn't the sort of burning issue that it was when these revelations first came to light. And even though we've got this point now where we're not going to be outraged by it, I think it does still stay and remains with people. And I think we'll only be able to tell really when we get to probably a general election, not even the local ones, about how much damage this has done. Does it stay and remain with you? I mean, when I was talking about the sort of, or hinting at the morals of all this in my introduction, do you agree with that, that it's a big moral as much as a political deal? In my cynical, uh, jaded self, which I am, having done so many years in Westminster, no, it doesn't stay with me, because I think, you know, it, when, you, when, you've, when you've done this, you sort of think about the calculations that are happening behind the scenes rather than how you feel about it particularly, you know, from, from what you've said in terms of trust in politicians. I think the thing that makes this unique is that 
this government was supposed to be the antidote to that because Boris Johnson was the Prime Minister that was delivering Brexit and that sense of control. It's just the same old after this huge shift occurred in our political world. And actually, it hasn't really, has it? What, we're just back to square one? Angry and resentful people looking at distant elites doing as they please, which is what... It's not even back to square one, though, in that sense, is it? I mean, it's worth... like summer, I've I've lived through a lot of Westminster scandals in my time. I'm not particularly naive or easily shocked, but actually, I, I remember anything like this before. You know, a prime minister just standing up and saying, "Yeah, I broke the law. So what? You know, we're carrying on." Woo-hoo. And the amazing thing is, you'd have thought if someone had said to you five years ago, "This is where we're going to end up," you'd think people would be rioting in the streets, you know, manning the barricades. Instead of which, everyone's just like, "Oh well, yeah." Okay, just for the record, I am uh, still pretty livid about all this, very livid about it, and we'll come on to this, but one of the reasons I'm still angry about it is there's a sort of anxiety bound up with it, because I think this is very, very dangerous in all sorts of ways, but we'll come on to talk about that. Let's talk about Partygate itself and what's happened this week. There's been so much to process about all this, just in terms of just talking about Tuesday and what played out. We all got the news alert about that party, a birthday party, which ended up getting the Prime Minister and the Chancellor fined. It was a surprise birthday party held for Boris Johnson's birthday on June the 19th, 2020. And thereafter, already there are lots of of strange and somewhat contested details about all this. The front page of the Daily Mail, for example, today says um, that... It's all important to note that the cake was left uneaten, the birthday cake in the Tupperware container, and the Prime Minister only had salad. Oh, well, then, it's all fine, isn't it? I've not come across the salad defence before. Is the gravity of the offence reduced if you only have salad? It's not a calorific offence, is it? Really? <laughs> no, that's, that's the good. thing. I mean, the law that would be is quite not... quite fashionable, wouldn't it? It's not a sugar-based offence here. It is, it's, the, <laughs> it's the whole breaking the COVID law thing. I mean, they've been lucky in a sense in that the first, you know, the first time the Prime Minister's fined, because, of course, we're expecting him to be fined several more times for breaking the law several more times. But the first one is like the least worst of the parties. It's ah, kind okay. of a party where nobody inhaled. You know, there was going to be a cabinet meeting on COVID and they turned up slightly early and went, here's a cake with the, with the interior decorator in the background, as you do, because of who doesn't have their interior decorator at cabinet meetings. And, and you know, it lasted about five minutes and then it was over. So that's made it easier for government to say, you know, well, is this really a resigning issue? And we've all it, got... Just, it, just, to be, just to be faithful to the record, I think the Metropolitan Police have said that it lasted an hour. Yes, but there's there a question is a, about how long Boris Johnson. There's himself a question was there about for. how much of it was the party aspect of things, and how much of it was the COVID meeting aspect of things, and who was there at what time. You know, supposedly Carrie only popped in for five minutes, and she got fined, and Rishi Sunak had only turned up for the meeting, and sort of got accidentally, he says, swept up in this. You know, because like Rishi Sunak is so the kind of school swat who doesn't normally get in trouble, and has accidentally fallen in with the bad boys at the back of the bus on this one. You know, and it's so. It's all very odd as parties go, but it was still against the law, let's just say. Uh, yes, whatever happened. Um, Rishi Sunak's people seem to have briefed at, uh, at least one newspaper that he'd been sort of dragged into this. So it turns out he was the only one ambushed by cake. <laughs> he, or salad. Yeah, or salad. Um, well, if you turn up in the, in the sort of connecting doors of number 10 and 11 and you're going to a meeting with the Prime Minister and somebody pops in to have a surprise birthday cake i do sort of buy the fact that rishi sunak wasn't there intentionally to go to a birthday party 
it's conceivable then that someone sort of blunders into something in the cabinet room without knowing what's going on and what it involves. If he was due to be there to have a meeting, which is what has been suggested, and that Carrie came down to do this birthday thing for five minutes and then leave, it's conceivable that in that weird warren of number 10 that that happened. Nonetheless, that's that's not the mixing that should have been allowed, whether you live above the shop or not. Now, 50 fixed penalty notices issued by the Metropolitan Police so far. Um, is it your our understanding that uh, the parties for which people are being fined are sort of moving along chronologically here? They don't seem to be. Is that right? They're sort of jumping around somewhat. I don't know if the police are going through them chronologically or if they are going through the uncontested ones first, because there will be some parties where, you know, it was generally junior officials present and they've just gone hands up. Yeah, I was there, whatever. You know, it's very straightforward then for the police to say this is admitted. You've admitted the offence. You get fined Um, and that they're dealing with those first and that we are moving to the more serious and potentially contested ones. Uh, towards the end. That's what it looks like to me. And it's clear that the Treasury didn't think Rishi Sunak was going to be fined. They were surprised when he got a questionnaire for this from the Met, and they obviously didn't think he was going to be fined. I think that's one of the reasons it took so long for Sunak to respond, because there was an assumption that this wouldn't, you know, this might not meet the seriousness threshold, whereas obviously the parties that we've all heard about, you know, the one on the eve of the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral when everyone was lashed in the Downing Street Garden, you know, it's all when everyone was sort of dancing to ABBA and celebrating Dominic Cummings' departure is very, very, very hard to argue that they had anything to do with work. We should just make it clear as well that I think there are five more parties at which it's commonly understood Boris Johnson was present. So this may only be the beginning from Boris Johnson's And the tip of the iceberg. And as we said, you know, these are the, this is probably the least the least serious and the most easily explainable. And the question is whether, you know, does this set the tone for all the rest? If he gets away with this one, does he get away with all the others? Or are there some Tory MPs still listening, thinking, well, this isn't the one to act over, but, you know, let's see what the what the next one is. Indeed. Boris Johnson did apologise a few hours after receiving the fine on Tuesday. He said he was sorry uh, and he was going to try and work extra hard from now on or something like that. Let's hear some of what he said. I understand the anger that many will feel that I myself fell short when it came to observing the very rules which the government I lead had introduced to protect the public. And I accept in all sincerity that people had the right to expect better. What do you think of that, Salma? Well, I think it's the most apologetic and the, <laughs> the, most, <laughs> the most responsibility he's taken for any of this so far. Is it as strong as it could have been? Probably not, because the, the tone of it is, you know, let's all move on from this now. So if there are more fines that come his way, I'm not sure that people are going to react to it in the way that they did when the parties were first revealed. Let me ask you a blunt question. Do you think Boris Johnson should resign? Um... I find this a difficult one because morally, yes, it's wrong. But if you're thinking about this as a decision maker and thinking, okay, what comes next? If I were a Tory MP and I were agitating for him to go on the principle of it and he goes, what comes next? It's sort of the better the devil you know kind of feeling that comes into play here. You mean in the sense that there's no obvious successor? Yeah. But that, that shouldn't even be a relevant consideration, should it? If you've got something as heinous as a Prime Minister having lied to the House of Commons and lied to the public and broken the law. Is, but don't you think that is the consideration? 
It always is in practical terms, though, isn't it? Whether it should be or shouldn't, it always is in practical terms. It is for any party when you're thinking about changing the leader. And I can see, although I think Boris Johnson can resign, I can see the logic of looking at Liz Truss and thinking, whoa, frying pan fire. But, you know, that is a that is a terrible indication of where the Conservative Party is. If with 300 plus MPs, it's got nobody who genuinely thinks can do a better job than Boris Johnson. If you're a party actually in that state, then I'm sorry, you call a general election. I think this is where the cynicism of politics really does come into play, though, because it is about those practical, pragmatic choices. Um, Do you not think as a Conservative, there's a sort of anything is better than this aspect? How can you go on for any period of time with a Prime Minister who's proven to have lied to the House of Commons and lied to the public and is the first Prime Minister ever to have been found breaking the law? I mean, the effect that'll have on the Conservative Party, apart from the question of the effect it'll have on the wider political system, is huge, right? Yes, I think it will have an impact at some point at a general election. But the calculation, and it is always a calculation, a cynical calculation for anyone who is in politics, is how much damage will this actually cause? And that's that's what we get down to. That's what it boils down to. But in that sense, wounded lying Boris is better than Liz Truss. Well, are we in the situation where we expected anything different from this Prime Minister? Yes, I think it's fair to say. I'm still surprised by the heinousness of this. I don't know where the Gabby is and I don't know where the... No, are. I'm not surprised by the are heinousness of this. I mean, I'm, we knew what we were getting. You knew what you were enabling if you voted for Boris Johnson. I'm not surprised. But, I mean, that doesn't mean I'm not shocked. <laughs> It's it's a weird combination of him turning out to be exactly what you thought he would be, but what you thought he would be is not enough. Let's talk briefly about Rishi Sunak. Um, on Tuesday, there was quite an interesting five or six hour sort of lull, this silence um, from Rishi Sunak. Uh, and we're now told that he was deciding his options yet again. I think this is the second time in a week or 10 days that he's been reported as considering resigning. If he had resigned, there is a theory that that would have made Boris Johnson's position even more difficult. There is also a theory that it would have shored Boris Johnson up because then everyone would have rallied round a bit more. What do you think was going through Rishi Sunak's head, Gabby? Well, first of all, I don't think Rishi Sunak expected to get fined because he would have had a quicker answer if he had um, had been sort of geared up for this. I think the calculation would have been... He was already halfway out the door anyway as a result of what happened last week, you know, the row about his wife's non-dom status. We know, I think, the Sunak seriously considered getting out of politics altogether, escape the intrusion into their family life as they see it, go off to California and have a nice life. So there's also the possibility that he might be reshuffled out of the Treasury anyway in summer. So what's the point in, in hanging on? So you can see there's an argument for just saying, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm off and um, I'll go and have a nice life with my, you know, spending more time with my money or whatever it is. And actually, had he done that, I think it would have been very, very difficult for Boris Johnson because if Rishi Sunak has to resign for this, then it's a resigning offence and he should have gone too. There is no way in which Sunak's resignation, I think, shores up the Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is extremely lucky that Rishi Sunak has stayed. I was going to say about Rishi Sunak that, you know, he's had a, I mean, it's his own fault, but he's had a pretty awful three weeks. And if he had resigned, it might have slightly redeemed him. A lot of people say he's sort of completely politically finished when it comes to high office. So it might have been a smart move in that sense. 
Yeah, I. the thing is, we've got to remember that with Rishi, he actually has had a lot very quickly. So he hasn't had the edges knocked off him, you know, in a junior ministerial post or, you know, on the back benches. He's gone from sort of being a junior minister to being chancellor in the blink of an eye. And also, I think when you get it all so quickly, actually, you do start fearing losing it. You know, where do you go from being chancellor? There's only really one place if you're if you want progression going upwards. And I think he probably didn't want to risk that. And that's probably why he's sort of been, you know, putting himself up for um, putting himself forward to the ethics or standards advisor, as Lord Guyt is, you know, trying to sort of clear his name in in some respects. But he's had that, hasn't he? I mean, Rishi Sunak is not going to be leader of the Conservative Party or Prime Minister, is he? He's very, very damaged. Look, I think he is damaged. That's not in question. But then, you know, how many people have we seen previously who have been incredibly damaged by their own actions and then come back into frontline politics in a significant way. You know, Boris Johnson is the absolute archetype of someone that just keeps bouncing back from from really terrible things that he's done in the past. So I don't think you can I don't think you can necessarily write him off. I think it would have been difficult for him to go to the backbenches because you sort of end up in a bit of a a Jeremy Hunt scenario where you, you're, you're a big beast, but actually there's very little traction that you can gain. Now, and he himself has said he'd much rather be go to California and, and um, as I understand it, make lots of money than have a role on the back benches. Anyway, actually, let's... Um... One point is that it's very interesting that that's what's being briefed because that, I think, is probably the most damaging thing to his future prospects in that what Tory MP is going to back you if you're going to be really flimsy about it and they think, you know, that he's just going to up and leave and go to California at any given point. That is not the kind of certainty that you need for it in a leader. Um, lots and lots of Conservatives, 70 Conservative MPs in all, I think that includes members of the Cabinet, have come out and defended and backed Boris Johnson. And we've heard a lot of these people in the last sort of 36 hours on the radio and television, perhaps most notably Grant Shapps, who was on the Today programme on Wednesday morning, who had a, a slightly questionable time of it, as uh, evidenced by moments like this. He's prepared, quite rightly, um, to accept the view of the Metropolitan Police, and he's not challenging uh, that view. Uh, what he said at the time was because, presumably, his officials had said that what he did at the time, and, and some of these things were uh, organised by uh, staff, were within the, the, the rules. But look, so as don't I said, blame right me, I'm top, only the Prime Minister. Well, as I said, right at, right at the top. Uh, well, I, I believe Mr Shepard, you can't was... have it both ways, can you? You can't say, look, he is the Prime Minister and he takes full responsibility, but then when I put anything to you, you say, oh, well, it's the police's view, or you say, oh, well, someone else told him it was OK, or that's what he believed at the time. There are so many issues here. I mean, it's pretty awful and nauseating, I think, to hear people defending Boris Johnson by citing the awful experiences that people are having in Ukraine. I mean, there's just something that doesn't sit right about that, pretty obviously. And then the other thing that we keep being told, it seems to me, is that a prime minister who, who seems to have the moral compass of a two-year-old and apparently can't recognise a party when they're at one and has just been fined and has broken the law is also the person who is meant to position himself at the head of the whole of Europe in the midst of... Um, the most significant war since 1945. Both things can't be true, can they? This is so typical of a government that actually generally doesn't have any coherence. It's almost as, as if there's an expectation that people have this cognitive dissonance that actually you can say this thing and then this thing at the same time and it'll be fine. 
So even in the course of sort of two minutes, they, they flagrantly contradict themselves. But also, they must know, right? So when you've gone on the radio and you've had a sort of 20-minute experience like that, as often happens in the thick of it, presumably, you come off and go, God, I never want to have to do that again. I mean, it's not like they don't know that. Some of them, at least. Yeah, of course they do. Like, you you will chat to ministers all the time behind the scenes, I'm sure. And I think, you know, when you're not on broadcast or you're not being quoted, people probably let their guard down a little bit. And I think most of them probably just want to get through the five minutes that they've got with Nick Robinson on Radio 4 and just get off and get on with their day. But when you have that, when there is no kind of focus or mission you know, things start to fall apart. The bigger point is that this may well go on and on and on. Gabby, I mean, Sue Gray's report, we are told, is sort of imminent now, and that will be more lurid and vivid than the announcement of fixed penalty notices from the Metropolitan Police, because then you get detail. Yes, and you may also have more identifying factors. You know, we're not being told everyone who's who's being fined at the moment. Sue Gray won't come out until after the Met have finished, but as we've said, you know, the Met have got quite a few parties to get through yet. So, you know, and all of this is happening, of course, against a backdrop of the local elections, which is the first real test. You know, we've been talking a lot about how the public might respond and whether people might, you know, whether it's already priced in or whether people are fed up of, you know, talking about all this. Actually, the local elections are going to be a really good measure of that. We already know from polling that the number of people saying that Boris Johnson should resign over all this is down from January when, when you know, things were at their height. But it's up from a couple of weeks ago when, when all this had faded into the background. Um, due to Ukraine. So, you know, we've got some some really serious tests of public opinion coming up. And also just on a local election campaign, MPs and ministers have to be out there. They're out there, you know, they're supposed to be visiting hospitals and going for photo opportunities and meeting voters and canvassing. And the, the likelihood that you're going to come across some furious person whose dad died during COVID and they didn't get to see them and they couldn't go into the ward or whatever is incredibly high. You know, there is an absolute minefield over the next few weeks to come where I think you will, will start to to see some sort of very genuine difficulties for ministers. It's one thing talking your way out of an interview with Nick Robinson. I think it's very hard talking to someone who's in tears, who wants to tell you about what their experience during COVID was like and how let down they feel. Right, we will um, pause there. In a moment, we'll talk about some of this stuff, the wider impact Partygate is going to have on politics and um, which politician might conceivably ride to the rescue. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. This is Politics Weekly UK from The Guardian, and we are talking about this high watermark so far, as far as Partygate is concerned, with The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff and Salma Shah. Can we talk about why this may well prove to be really, really corrosive for politics and government more generally? In other words, you know, taking as read that the Conservative Party has problems here, but the effects of this are going to be much wider and deeper. I want to talk about public trust and what people think about integrity and high standards in public life. Because those things, I think, aren't just a good in themselves. People's sort of belief in them, in the people who are governing them, is what holds really any functioning democracy together. And in recent years, politicians have repeatedly been given notice about plummet in public trust. The expenses crisis broke in 2009. That fed into the vote for Brexit in 2016. Support for Scottish independence, you can argue, is partly about a lack of faith in Westminster. And here we are with the worst 
crisis for public trust potentially that we've seen so far. And in that sense, this is huge, isn't it? I think public trust is not just a sort of nice to have or it's not just a, a theoretical quality. It's a social good. It's what holds together some essential functions of our society. For example, you know, in high trust countries, people are more willing to pay their taxes. In high trust countries, people are more willing to ha, 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 obey the law because you assume... High public trust indicates that you feel your fellow citizens are doing the right thing and therefore you feel more inclined to do the right thing because you're all doing it. In a low trust country where you think that everyone's up to no good, well, you might as well join in because otherwise you're the only mug who's sort of playing by the rules. So trust has a very definite, calculable, measurable, as any behavioural economist will tell you, impact on the kind of world we live in and that's gone out the window. The other thing that worries me actually about this is in the same way as the expenses scandal... Fair to climate, it wasn't just the MPs who actually had fiddled their expenses that the public, you know, hated. It was all MPs because it became a, they're all at it, they're all doing it, you know, and then none of them can be trusted. And I think there was no sort of party advantage in it for anyone. And I think it's much the same here. You know, if you have sort of a government that's seen as lying or accepting a liar in its midst, it smears everyone. It covers the other parties too. It feeds into an idea they're all lying, you can't trust any of them, don't do what they say. But as a result, you see, if people then feel the same way about the Labour Party and the Lib Dems and other parties that are in the political mainstream, what bothers me then is about space being opened up for the sorts of political forces that aren't talked about very often in the context of conversations about Westminster, you know. But clearly, it seems to me, this doesn't mean, oh, you know, an extra load of votes for Keir Starmer. The consequences of this could be much darker and horrible than that, right? I mean, this is how right-wing populism takes root. The disgrace of elites has been its way in, and here's yet another example of it. So it might it might be more people paying attention to Tommy Robinson or, or Nigel Farage or things we don't even know about yet. But in some ways we've already had that, haven't we? Because actually, I mean, you referenced the expenses scandal. We had this period in British politics where every institution was sort of proving that it had become too big and too self-satisfied in, in many respects. So you had the MP scandal, you had the banking crisis, you had questions around media, especially after Leveson. And so all those institutions and all those areas in which we had trust or we, we believed and where we got our information and where we put our faith were actually sort of being dismantled slowly from within because of poor practice. And we did have, you know, the Nick Griffiths of the world, Nick Griffins even of the world, who exploited that. And you, arguably, you know, Nigel Farage and UKIP have already made that play. So this is, in some ways, it feels a little bit cyclical that we're coming back to that yet again. So we do know how this plays out. It could and be yes, even it worse, but it could be something. even worse this time. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think there was a point, I think, in, in 2011, where the only institution that seemed to be surviving and thriving was the monarchy. Uh, oh, and, that's, ho, ho. and then Prince Andrew well, took care of that. Really well, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so we are coming back to that. And I think the, the issue is that trust in politics has always been down here. And what you're going to have to do is not try and maintain where it is, but find ways of increasing and improving how people feel about politicians. And it's a real shame because Boris Johnson, strangely, as a result of Brexit and confronting that Brexit campaign, 
did have a lot of goodwill in that sense because it was this idea, you know, that seductive taking back control, that idea that actually we are going to be free from the shackles of faceless bureaucrats and we're going to be able to, to take these decisions. I think he's squandered that goodwill. Doesn't that make out that Boris Johnson sort of positioned himself as the answer to that crisis of public trust? And I think he might have done something even more cynical which is that he effectively said to people, well, if you've got low expectations of politician and you think you're all rogues, you might as well have a lovable rogue, and that's me. I don't think he ever created the impression that he was the answer to all that disconnection and resentment. Well, he suggested he was different. He suggested he wasn't like other politicians, and, and conventional politicians had become a very toxic idea, and he was an unconventional one. And well, it turns that out that unconventional ones, yes. unconventional ones are actually even worse than conventional <laughs> ones. And that is where I think you get a space opening up for what the hell, we might just go completely off reservation. But, you know, and I do, I, I agree with you, that is, a, that is a real danger. But as I have to say, as the eternal sort of sunny optimist of the team, you, you could also look at what happened in the US where you have, you know, again, a sort of leader who goes completely off the deep end and who, you know, forces the US to consider what kind of constitutional checks and balances they have against a sort of nutter in the White House. And the response to that actually is... Joe Biden, who, you know, sort of wins an election purely on the basis of looking like, OK, he might be 107 and a bit vague, but he's a decent, he comes, what sold that presidency was the idea of decency. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that in the sense that Joe Biden, Biden, viewed from a certain perspective, is making such a hash of things that Trump might maybe about to come He is making a massive hash of things. So. So I'm, not, I'm not suggesting, you know, let's, let's have a Biden over here. But I think it is possible for people to respond to an extreme, you know, an extreme and unconventional leader by going you know, God, no, let's have the opposite of that. Let's talk about the, the party politics of this moment. Keir Starmer on Tuesday recorded the obligatory uh, pool clip where he affected to be very sort of roused and, uh, and righteous about the news that had broken, and he sounded like this. The guilty men are the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. They dishonoured all of that sacrifice. They've dishonoured their office. This is the first time in the history of our country that a Prime Minister being found to be in breach of the law. I think that sounded like uh, someone from the Lower Sixth in the school production of a Shakespeare play, and the English teacher would say, that sounds a bit wooden, Starmer. Can you make it sound a bit more authentic? I didn't think he did that very well at all. I think they need to get off the subject of, you know, he's a terrible person, he should go. What they need to do is move on to the idea of, this guy is not a legitimate prime minister. He is not legitimately in office. He has so dishonoured the office that he shouldn't be there. And he's taking advantage of the fact that we have no way of getting rid of him. They should treat him in much the same way that actually in the sort of aftermath of the 2010 election, when it wasn't kind of you know clear that, that anybody had a majority to govern, the Tories just treated Gordon Brown like a squatter. There was literally, he's, he's hanging on to number 10 legally. You know, he should get out. He is basically squatting in the house. They should treat him like that. They should find ways and they're going to have had to be more imaginative ways than doing a clip to camera saying well this is awful but you know they're going to have to find ways of making him look like he doesn't deserve to be there like we don't accept his right to govern us i think on this score keir starmer has found his voice at least once right which is when sue gray published her initial findings and starmer responded and if this is a moment that requires a bit of authenticity and emotion and speaking to people's collective experience as far as the last two years are concerned i think that one time he did it pretty well. He sounded like this. Many have been overcome by rage, by grief and even guilt. Guilt that because they stuck to the law, they did not see their parents one last time. 
guilt that because they didn't bend the rules, their children went months without seeing friends. Guilt that because they did as they were asked, they didn't go and visit lonely relatives. But people shouldn't feel guilty. They should feel pride in themselves and their country because by abiding by those rules, they've saved the lives of people they will probably never meet. I thought what he said there had potential because there is a sort of vacuum. There's a vacancy here for a narrative, for a story about what we've all been through and what it meant and what it said about us as a country. And Boris Johnson, because of Partygate, can't talk about that stuff. And Keir Starmer can. So shouldn't he do that a bit more? I think the point is, uh, is that how do you keep this running and how do you make this a theme rather than an issue? Because you've got to think about this. I know I'm sort of being the cynical voice here, but you've got to think about this in electoral terms because... If at some point, if it's not now and at some point in the next six months, Boris Johnson is ditched, actually the attack has to continue and it's got to be beyond that one person. Because the more you make it about Boris Johnson, the likelier it is that the Conservatives will get rid of him, replace him with someone credible and maybe just scrape through into the next election. What do we think is going to happen in May? There are local elections looming. It's also very likely there's going to be a by-election in Wakefield. It may also uh, be the case that there'll be a by-election where I'm, I live in Summerton and Froome, where David Warburton at the moment is the MP. So, you know, a number of pretty significant contests here. It's possible that a bad May local election result convinces some Tory MPs who at the moment are thinking, well, stick with him because he's potentially better than any of the alternatives to thinking. Those MPs need to begin to believe en masse that actually he's a liability and that sticking with him will lose us our seats. At that point, they will move. They don't believe that at the moment or don't believe that in sufficient numbers. And that's what the local elections could potentially change. Do you think that he may be a casualty of the local elections, Salma? The only thing that makes me think not is that these are not big local elections. So they're thirds and it's not sort of, it's not, you know, the majority number of councils that are going to be up this time. And I think there's been so much expectation management around it that we might just glide through in the sense that, you know, the expectation that, oh, well, you know, we've been in government for a long time. There's these headlines. Um, your local elections are really more about your bin collection and that kind of thing. And that's what we need to be judged on. I agree with you in terms of the numbers, but I think election, local elections are as much about when we've seen, you know, elections, local elections results or European election results or whatever be decisive in the past or by-elections. It's not just the, the end result. It's the fact that MPs are out there a lot canvassing. They're out there on the doorstep. They're exposed to what the public mood is. They're hearing. It's a very good litmus test of where people are. You can hear where people are compared to when you canvassed this area two years ago. You do get a very strong immediate sense that might not come through to you in your weekly constituency surgeries or might not come through to you otherwise of, of what the mood is. And that, I think, tends to be... I agree with you, there's not enough seats up to, you know, to make for a really good poll. But in those seats that are voting... I think, you know, there's a sense that you get the public mood. So that's one reason May might be significant. It's just the simple prospect of Conservative MPs for the first time in a while actually encountering and experiencing public opinion at its rawest and uh, being reminded of the gravity of, of what Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, among others, have done. I mean, there is a fair certainty that we are going to be back here next week and the week after that and the week after that. 
and Partygate will still be one of the key topics of conversation. So I look forward to having this conversation again. For now, thanks for listening. If you want more Partygate analysis, and of course you do, tune into our sister podcast Today in Focus, where the host Nasheen Iqbal is talking to the Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland. I also want to flag a live event that I'll be doing online on Tuesday the 3rd of May with Gabby Hinsliff, who you've been listening to today, and the Labour MP Lisa Nandy. To get a ticket, follow the link on this podcast page. That's all for today. My thanks to Gabby Hinsliff and Salma Shah. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena. The music was by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back next Thursday. 